This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Coming up, a very special conversation about a new book, The Senses Around the Life of a Fabulous, Fearless and Infamous Abortionist. And later in the show, the esteemed film and media critic Bob Ross will join me to review this year's Oscar nominations. Now, get ready. And are you comfortable? Okay, let's begin. My guest is Jennifer Wright, and she has written a book titled Madame Restel, or is it Madame? We'll get to that. The subtitle, The Life, Death and Resurrection of Old New York's Most Fabulous, Fearless and Infamous abortionist, Jennifer Wright. Thank you so much for having me. Is it Madame or is it Madame? Well, that really is a question. I always pronounce it Madame, but because this is an American figure, but I imagine she might have wanted to pronounce it Madame. Yes, yes. This, of course, was not her real name. Her real name was Anne Trow, and she was an immigrant from England who adopted this pseudonym in part because she wanted to seem more sophisticated as French people did in the mid-1800s and still do today, but also because medical discovery at this time was undergoing what's called a Paris period, where France was really considered at the forefront of medical techniques. Yes. So uh, pretending to have spent time studying there would have given people the impression that she was a very skilled physician. I should let my audience know that it is very graphic in parts, and I think justifiably so. In some respects, this is is a history book of medical procedures, not just abortion. It's also a history of something which I want to focus in on just in a minute, midwifery, midwives. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to come as a surprise to, to people when, when we talk about this in a second. But it's also just a general history of New York in in a lot of respects and life in the times of the 1800s. So there's a lot. You've packed an awful lot into this book. But let's just go into it just a little bit. So here's this woman that comes as an immigrant. She was a, 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 a what 16 years old as a servant a servant maid in in the UK. She gets married because she, she immigrates to to the US. Oh, and you and, and this is another thing. You tell about what servants' life is like at that time, at that period, not just in the UK, but but anywhere, I guess. And what a horrible life. <laughs> what a horrible life. Downton <laughs> Abbey really doesn't give you that impression, does it? Right. Uh, yeah. No, I I think that was so fascinating to me, the incredible frequency with which uh, serving maids were sexually harassed or violated to such an extent that Jonathan Swift has this wonderful joke about how you're going to have to avoid the eldest son in the family, because if you don't, you'll get a big belly or to clap and probably both. So uh, I I find it so interesting that Madame Restell began her life as a servant because yes. later in her life, when she's performing abortions, she worked on a sliding scale in terms of how much women had to pay her. And uh, many, many of her patients were people who had an employer who had had sex with them and now was paying for an abortion or they were paying for the abortion themselves. 
I should let my listeners also know that something that permeates throughout this book and, and, and realistically it's going to, and that is sex. That word that some people are so fearful of is that sex from page one in this book, really, it's it's there throughout the book. I mean, this is really, in some respects, this is talking about not just morals, but it's also just about humankind. And it's kind of weird how we've gone through these different changes because at the time of this book, of, of Restel, as she became Madame Restel in New York, abortion wasn't exactly what we would call illegal, but but medical or, or, or a physical abortion was. Have I got that right? Yes. Uh, well, abortion would have been a misdemeanor up until the quickening. And the quickening is when a woman can begin to feel um, the fetus move inside her. Yes. So uh, generally that happens around five months. Right. So you had quite a good amount of time where you could perform an abortion. And yes, there was a fine for it, but it um, it generally wasn't considered something that was a criminal act the way we have come to think of it in uh, in later society. Yes. And something we really need to point out as well is that at the time when Madame Restel was performing abortions, and uh, there's so much to get, to get into here, but it was a very common thing. Incredibly was, common. It, but, I mean, the numbers, you have the numbers in the book. Yes, the estimate is, uh, the, the estimate we make now is that about one in five pregnancies would have ended in an abortion. Uh, Horatio Storer, who was very anti-abortion, says that it was closer to one in four in New yeah. York. Yes. So it was a very common procedure. And part of that is because many women would have more than one abortion. Madame yes. Ristel has many patients who talk about how, oh, they're coming to her for the 10th time. Yes. Or, uh, or they have already been there many, many times in the past. So as is the case today, a lot of the women who were having abortions were women who already had children. And part of the reason behind that is the urbanization of America. That yes. if you're suddenly living in an urban society, you don't have much money, food is very uncertain, you can't afford to have that many children. Um, there, There is no room for them. It might have been a little bit easier in a rural society where if you live on a farm, life is going to be very, very hard, but you do at least have some food to feed your 12 children. And your 12 children can work on the farm as early as three. I'm sorry, so much of this is interconnected and it's all I... just so fascinating to me. But it's one of the reasons that orphan trains started in the 1850s, this idea that they would take the many, many orphans and foundlings in New York, put them on trains and send them off to the Midwest where they would go and work on farms. Let me just and... stop you there for a moment, because I just want to make make it clear for my audience, the difference between orphans and foundlings. Foundlings, you yes. yes. You go into great detail in the book about this. And also, I should let my, my listeners know that you you go into graphic detail about the lives, particularly of the very poor in New York. And, and just you paint these, oh, gosh, these terrible, terrible pictures. But please, I interrupted you. Continue on. No, no, uh, no I had originally thought because some of the writings on the topic from the period talk about how 
Europe is much better if you have an unplanned pregnancy because there are these foundling hospitals where women can go and give birth to a child and give it away and move on with their lives. And in America, there's no such thing. Now, of course, like all of us, I have seen Hamilton. So I remember Eliza Tyler building the first orphanage in New York. And I couldn't really square that as a modern person with the fact that there seemed to be no recourse for women who gave birth to children. And what I found out was that orphans and foundlings are very different in the eyes of people at that time. Orphans were children who had two parents. And perhaps their two parents died of typhus. And now you have this child who has come from a good family, but has no one to take them in. And for those children, there were orphanages. But for children who were completely unplanned, who had an unwed mother, those are foundlings. And the orphanages will not take them in because they are considered to have bad blood. And right. if you let them grow up, they will follow in the footsteps of their perverse mother and just become whores themselves. So these children are completely abandoned. There's so much... To not to unpack, but there's so much to tell my audience about here. So I don't want, I want to try and get as much in as I possibly can. At the beginning, I talked about, I mentioned about midwifery and midwives. At this time in America, not in Europe, but in America, midwives were kind of frowned upon, which I found, I, I was really shocked to read that in your book. Can you talk about that? Midwives become more frowned upon because this is also a time when there start being a great deal more doctors in America. Up until if you look through the 1700s, most doctors would have been apprentices to another doctor in their town. Maybe you would have been the town doctor's son. You would grow up following your father. He would basically tell you how to set a broken bone and basic other medical procedures. Maybe you'd be a little bit better than him. Maybe you'd be a little bit worse. But uh, what starts happening at this time in America is a lot of uh, more educated physicians would go to Europe and you would walk through the hospitals of Europe and you would see patients suffering from all kinds of conditions. You would hear lectures by doctors. You would gain greater knowledge than you would if you were just an apprentice to a doctor. Yes. So schools in America started saying, well, we can do that. We'll just, we'll open some more schools for doctors in America yeah. and we'll send out pamphlets and tell men that, you know, you can make a lot of money being a doctor. Now, what they did differently than Europe is they did not have people walk the halls of the hospital. A lot of people were graduating from these schools without ever seeing a very, very ill person. Uh, it kind of shocked me when I found out that many of them would just rent a hall, have a box of bones, and if you paid your fee uh, at the end, you, you were a doctor. Congratulations, you could open up a shop as a doctor. So, and uh, these courses would last something like six months. This is not what we think of as the education doctors should have today. You also but, tell us, you also say that these people that were classified as doctors had very limited knowledge about not just bodies, but in specifically the, the female body. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. When you were examining female patients, you were told to avert your eyes. Yes. So, yes. So you would not intrude upon their modesty. 
which may be very nice for their modesty, but is very bad if you need to see what's going on physically with them. I and, love the way you describe that in the book. It's like there's a lot of passages in your book that I, I love the way that you write it because and you communicate to us because on one hand, it's incredibly serious and, and gosh, it's sort of shocking. And But at the same time, there's a sort of an element of, oh, <laughs> just wonder at the same time. It's, it's remarkable. It's yeah. it's amazing how different this is from yeah. what we think of as going on with medicine today. So obviously, if you are a male doctor who has done very little examinations and no examinations on female patients while you're training, midwives have a huge advantage. So uh, midwives, at the very least, know what a female body looks like, know when uh, a woman who comes to them says, I've I've been uh, having my period for weeks at a time. As a woman, right. you know what's abnormal. As a male doctor, well, that's that's intruding upon her modesty. So we really have no idea if that's normal or not. So uh, midwives were uh, usually gone to for people who were giving birth or who wanted to have an abortion or who yes. wanted to obtain pills that would act as some kind of birth control or some sort of medical abortion. So midwives were much more popular at that time. And one of the things doctors started doing around then as there was an increase in male doctors was trying to drive midwives out of business. And one of the ways you could do that is by saying abortions are very immoral. Um, if you have an abortion, you will go insane. Women ha who have abortions suffer from unbelievable depression afterwards. You, um, Horatio Storer is really at the forefront of this. And uh, I think it's so interesting that he always talks about the fetus as being a potential male. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, uh, they that doctors must be on the side of the future young man. That yes. that is their responsibility now. It is no longer the responsibility of the woman who is pregnant. And I think one of his most brilliant and nefarious arguments is that women can't make a decision about whether or not to have an abortion because the very fact of being pregnant means they are insane. So uh, they are experiencing so many mental changes because they are pregnant that they can no longer make rational decisions on that topic. Madame Restel is the title of the book, The Life, Death and Resurrection of Old New York's Most Fabulous, Fearless and Infamous Abortionist. Jennifer Rice is my guest and she is the author. So let's let's just focus in on Madame Restel. She wasn't Madame Restel originally. She was uh, Anne originally, and, and she comes from England. She comes over as an immigrant, and she gets work as a seamstress. And then she, she three I think it's three years that she's in America, and she meets a man of Russian-German descent, I think. Am I, am I right? She meets a printer whose name is Charles Lohman. He's yeah. a thinker. And uh, he shared Madame Rostel's incredible ambition that they had come to America, this land of dreams, they were going to get rich. And they were both living in a pretty precarious position in the Lower East Side. So uh, what Madame Rostel had started doing before she met Charles was she was a wonderful seamstress. Her husband had been a seamstress. Her husband had been a tailor. Yeah. He had also been an alcoholic. So she'd really taken over for him. Then they make it to America. Then he dies. Now, Madame Restelle is in America at a time when there are approximately 20,000 other working women 
in New York. It had a population of about 185,000. And uh, most of those women are seamstresses. So uh, people were making very, very little money as a seamstress. And since she had a child, factory work and going back to work as a servant really isn't an option for her. So uh, Madame Rostel's position is incredibly precarious. And this is why a lot of women during that period took to prostitution. Because if you have a child, you have virtually no other work. You're getting paid maybe a few dollars a week from mending other people's clothing. There's just no way to sustain your child and yourself. So uh, instead of doing that, though, Madame Rostel happens to live down the street from this pill compounder named yes. Dr. Evans, whose uh, pills promise to help with female irregularities, which is newspaper code for you have missed your period and you need it to start again. Here's something that will induce that. And uh, Madame Rostel started compounding pills with them. And originally she started compounding pills for all manner of maladies. This was pretty common at the time. So you'd take herbs, you'd come up with some sort of combination for them that maybe helps with sleep or heartburn or headaches or whatever else have you. Uh, but Madame Rostel finds that the pills she's compounding for birth control work really, really well. And she builds up a very large clientele. Now, what she's using um, in those are uh, turpentine, tansy oil, uh, ergot, uh, I think they're pronounced cantharides. These are incredibly dangerous ingredients. They will induce a miscarriage, but it's honestly shocking to me that she was able to combine these in a way where she was not killing women. But uh, women seem to love them. One woman says that Madame Rostel's pills caused her to miscarry five times. Clearly, this is working very well for her. And around that time, she meets Charles, who uh, is a printer for the Herald. And he starts saying, well, maybe we could come up with an identity for you. And we could start running advertisements. And uh, Charles and she are both fairly literary people. So uh, they take some, some rhetoric that is very largely plagiarized from other writers at the time about the good of birth control. They start running these as advertisements. And... Uh, her business just explodes. And, um, you know, I, I think there are people who want to credit Charles entirely with her success. Personally, I think she would have been pretty successful, even if she'd just been relying on word of mouth. It just might have taken a little bit longer. But Charles also adopts the identity of a doctor. He calls himself Dr. Morrisow. He writes a handbook for pregnant women that contains, among other things, uh, recipes on how to induce an abortion, but he personally does not perform surgical abortions. He sends people over to his wife if they need an abortion done past the point where it can be induced by pills. I'm not going to say that I think they were hucksters, but they did have that element of being sort of, I guess, salespeople, didn't they? Both of them together. And I, so I all compounders from this period really yeah. have an element of showman. Yeah, and you quote some of the the labels and the uh, the medicines that they provide, and they're just fascinating stuff. And the ads that they run, just mm -hmm. just amazing stuff. Then we have to get to the point where she now becomes very very successful, 
I mean, very successful. We're not talking about just, you know, she's making some money, but she becomes a millionaireess. This is a whole nother thing. She had come from poverty. She had nothing. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden she's she's living very large and she's very proud of it. She's Tell my listeners about that. Um, I think... I think one of the reasons that people crack down on Madame Ristel quite so hard is because Madame Ristel did not believe what she was doing was wrong. She believed yes. she was providing an absolutely necessary societal service that people should be grateful to her. In many of the interviews with her, people talk about how she is an incredibly charming woman, and she cannot believe that people would think of her as anything other than just a wonderful, plucky, brave little lady doing uh, doing what was needed. And to that end, she is an incredibly stylish dresser. Uh, she has a spectacular wardrobe, and she buys a very beautiful carriage with a magnificent team of horses that she enjoys driving through the city. And eventually, she goes on to build this incredible mansion that is on land that the Archbishop yes. of New York wanted for himself. Yes. So, yes, he gave a speech that I is just infuriatingly lost to history in one of his sermons about uh, disliking Madame Ristel. And in response, Madame Ristel outbid him for a plot of land by hundreds of thousands of dollars and decided that she would build a mansion on it where she would continue performing abortions. I love that part of the story. I love that. And I love the way you describe the way she dresses and her carriage and and, and all the rest of it and, and how proud she was and how she mingled in society, higher society at that. There's so many fascinating aspects to 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 what you tell us in the book. But one thing that's of course looms over all of this, and I want to get to this before we run out of time, and that is is this this whole notion of abortion. And and here we are right now of what happened last year with the Supreme Court. And I and I don't want to focus on this too much, but I just want to be in case we don't get to mention it, that this is such an important part of your book. And in your epilogue, you talk about this. And this is this is where I think this book is so important. Let's talk about our legal troubles, because, again, this is fascinating stuff and particularly the way she handles it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, Madame Ristel is very good at evading the law most of the time. And uh, the end really comes with Anthony Comstock after what's known as the Comstock Laws were passed yeah. in 1973. This was in part, of, there was a great blowback to abortion in part because of um the incredible level of Irish immigration. People were very worried that white Americans were going to die out in light of Irish people moving into America. And they were also afraid about the growing numbers of newly freed Black people after the Civil War. Mm. So, uh, and Horatio Storer again makes the point that upon women's wombs depend the future of the country, that um, you have to give birth to white babies as a social good. And uh, that's something that I think Anthony Comstock very much agreed with. He was he was a very religious man. Uh, he was 
also a man who was very frightened by any kind of sexuality. Um, he was a chronic ma- masturbator, and there was a lot of self-loathing that accompanied that. <laughs> Um, which is uh it's it it's very funny to me to see anthony comstock talk about like seeing a belly dancer and how it's the worst experience of his life and he's gonna hate himself afterwards (laughs) and i think of people who have like taken belly dancing classes at the gym that's a fun way to access that but yeah so these comstock laws come into place in 1873 After that, it is forbidden not only to perform an abortion of any kind at any point, and that had already happened a bit earlier in the 1840s, but to even discuss birth control or write anything that would give people information about how to do an abortion, how to perform an abortion on themselves. And it's Anthony Comstock who personally comes and arrests Madame Ristel. He goes undercover. He says that he has a wife who, you know, she can't give birth again. Madame Ristel gives him some pills, tells tells him to tell his wife to take the pills, and if the pills don't work, come back next week, and the implication is that she'll perform an abortion for him. Of course, Anthony Comstock comes back. He comes back with a number of policemen. They arrest Madame Ristel. So there, there is a question about what happens after this point. At first, Madame Ristel is perfectly calm. Um, she goes with the policeman. She asks if she can have a good lunch beforehand. She eats oysters. Reporters come to visit her. She says, like, obviously somebody's putting him up to this. Uh, no, nobody would do this unless there was money in play. And I think that's so interesting because she still can't really believe that there are true believers opposed to her. Yes. But Anthony Comstock is very clear, like, there's no money in play. I'm doing this for God. He's also doing it because he needs more money to go towards his society for the suppression of vice. And getting big headlines is one of the ways you've got people to give money to that society. But Madame Ristel's attitude changes very quickly after that point. She becomes hysterical in a way that she has never been up until this point. Runs around telling people that she's suddenly very suicidal. Um, Shortly afterwards, she is a body is found uh, dead in her bathtub with the throat slit. Uh, There were questions at the time about whether or not this was actually her body. Her children said it was. Her her grandchildren, who she was incredibly close to, said, oh yes, this is our grandmother and we're taking her up to Terrytown to bury her body. Now, before that, she had talked to a coroner about whether a body could be exhumed if it was buried outside of New York. And he had said no. Uh, so they disposed of the corpse immediately outside of New York. And her son-in-law also went to the press saying there was a plan to get her out of the country. The plan was for her to go off and live in Europe at this point. And we know that um, most of her clothing and jewelry were gone from the house. So yeah. I have always liked to believe that Madame Ristel had hit a point in America where she decided, all right, I'm going to cut my losses. And there were a few reports of seeing her in Paris later. So I've always liked to believe that she kind of wanted to make the fiction that she created true at the very end of her life. And her grandchildren were known for the next decade to take a lovely three-month trip to Paris. Paris, right. Which leads me very nicely to a question that I'm dying to ask you, and that is, if you had been alive at the same time as Madame Restel, 
what would be the first question that you would have asked her? First question I would have asked her. Um, goodness, that's such a, God, that's so interesting. You know, well, first question, she she did kidnap a child. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, one of, one of, what I think of as Madame Ristel's worst decisions was she was paid off by one woman's father to get rid of this woman's baby. Her name was Mary Applegate. And uh, she tried to convince Mary Applegate just to give the baby to her, put it up for adoption. She, yes. could find, she could find a family that would take in this child. And Mary Applegate was very resolute. She wanted to keep her child. Uh, but uh, Madame Ristel, after Mary Applegate gave birth, uh, Pass the child off to someone and nobody really knows where it went. So um, so I would be very curious to know what she did with Mary Applegate's child. But as were people at the time, it was a huge scandal. But uh, other than that, I, I'd like to know how she learned to do this surgically. You go into quite graphic detail again about this in the book, about how the procedure goes forth and, and and you actually say in the book how did she know how did she i mean it's a very yes, it yeah. delicate procedure as you were writing the book as you were doing your research and and i and my and my producer were curious to know if there was any illustrations or any images of madame restel and we found that there are but there there's are. But there's it's only so unfortunate though, because it's always her with like demon wings behind yes. her. Yes, I know what bothers me about it is even her critics keep talking about how oh she's so beautiful, she's so elegant, her body's so great, oh she's so hot, everybody thinks she's gorgeous. <laughs> yes. yes. And the only pictures of her you can find are pictures of her frowning in jail or yes. uh, or with demon wings. So I. I really hope that someone out there will do a picture of Madame Rostel where she seems to fit the written description of her a little bit more. Is this a movie, do you think? Oh, God, yes, I hope so. I hope yeah. So. Have you solved the option? Is it? Is it, is it... Oh, we, we are talking to people right now, so hopefully it will get sold. I think it's a fascinating story. My thing with it is always that they will try to whitewash Madame Rostel because... Yeah. I, she is doing this for the money. I think this is, in many ways, kind of an American success story, more akin to a story like The Wolf of Wall Street or Scarface. Yes. It is a story about Mother Teresa nobly going off and doing good for people. But it is, Jennifer. It's also a story about America, and it's also a story about, it's about sex, and it's a story about how we become so pompous about certain things to serve our own political ends or where we stand in the certain in society going right back to the very beginning it to me it's it's like there's a it's a no-brainer men shouldn't have anything to do with this whatsoever just give me your take on on the naysayers i think quite often those people are male and i think those people haven't given birth i have given birth i lost yeah. Blood in my body. It was entirely worth it. My husband and I went through a lot of IVF. My daughter is the greatest joy in my life. Of course, but, yeah. Um, but there is no circumstance under which I think a man will ever be told, "All right, well, the government says you you're going to be drained of half the blood in your body, and they're going to have to operate on you." Yeah. Um, I think that there are many many ways you can, if your concern is really 
you have to do this. It saves a life. Um, abortion is murder. Well, then you also have to go and give blood every three months uh, because every time I give blood, I look at a nice little poster on the wall that tells me that giving blood will save three lives. Yes, now, yes. does anyone think that the government should mandate that you do that? No, absolutely not. Does anybody think that the government should mandate that you give away your organs after you die when really I think there's very little cost to you at that point? No, we don't do that in America. Bodily autonomy is absolutely sacred in this country as it applies to men, but it is seen as a woman's duty to sacrifice her health for at least nine months and very possibly sacrifice her life in a country where we have a staggeringly high maternal mortality rate in order to give birth. I think that is appalling. I am saying that as someone who desperately wanted a child. I think what is even more horrifying is we're now seeing the consequences of what happens when abortion is criminalized in certain states. And we're seeing the maternal mortality rates rise. We're seeing women who have had miscarriages be denied appropriate care. We're seeing 10-year-old girls who have been raped having to travel out of state. Um, and it is truly horrifying. It is truly horrifying to watch what is happening in that regard. Thank you so much for all of that. I really appreciate it. Madame Restel, the life, death and resurrection of old New York's most fabulous, fearless and infamous abortionist. Jennifer Wright has been my guest. I just want to say this, Jennifer. We've talked about quite a bit, but really we've only just, we haven't even sort of got the really, surface. Yeah, exactly. There is so much to, to take in here. And it is, I, I have to say, it, I read an awful lot, and this is a terrific read. It's a it's it's like a thriller in some Isn't respects. It? Yes, I don't well I it's, mean in, yeah. it's a getting rich in America story, which yes, I, yes, I, yes. But as as Jennifer just explained, there's a very, very important aspect of this book as well. And I really, really appreciate you saying all that. This has been a delight talking to you. Really enjoyed it. Yes, this was so much fun. I'm so glad we got to do that. <laughs> yes, really. Jennifer White has been my guest. Thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer, at Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much. Bye. A very large thank you to Jennifer Wright. Details about her book, Madame Restel, are up at lifeelsewhere.co. Next, a man who has critical opinions because he is the one and only film and media critic, Mr. Bob Ross. This is Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. We would like to know what you think of our program. Send your comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Okay, it's that time of the year once again when we go to our very good friend, the very learned Mr. Bob Ross for his, well, his intellectual, his, uh, gosh, I don't know, I don't know where to go with this. Bob Ross, welcome back to Life Elsewhere. Well, thanks, Norman. How's it going? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. We get you on the program, Bob, because you are a, a movie and media critic and you've been doing this for years. We call upon you as always, to talk about the Oscar nominations. I have to say right up front, Bob, I have seen very few of these movies, and some that are listed I probably wouldn't go to see anyway. So I just want to get that out of the way. Having said that, let's just go through some of these nominations. Actress, 
in a supporting role. I'm going to read them out for you, and then yeah. maybe you can give us some, some inputs. Nominees, Angela Bassett in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Hong Chow in The Whale, Kerry Condon in The Banshees of Inishbaran, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Stephanie Husu in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Bob Ross, what do you think? Well, I was glad to see that uh, that Hong Xiao got nominated nominated for the whale because that was a, a under the radar kind of movie and it's an incredible experience. Ah. Someone I can, something I can relate to personally. But I think the winner will be uh, Stephanie Sue because uh, everything, everywhere, all at once led the pack with eleven nominations, and generally that's an omen. That's a sign that it's going to do well. Plus, she gave a fantastic performance. My personal choice. Jamie Lee Curtis in the same movie. I didn't even know who it was when when she first appeared on screen. She disguised herself amazingly and and carries off that strange character to the point where she buries herself completely. Now, this is one I have on my list to see. In fact, I sat down last night to watch it and then somebody called me and then somebody else called me. So I never actually did get to watch it so i'm going to try and watch that tonight the only one that i've seen on this list is the is the banshees of innes heron uh, sharon baron whatever it's called yes yes, yes. what did yes. you think of that bob what did you think well, of that movie? i found it incredibly disturbing um yeah. moving moving but in, in a strange sense not in a very positive sense but that was not obviously the filmmaker's intent so they did what they intended to do very well, whether I think it's something to inflict on the world. You know, it's, that was rough. I thought it was. What, what did you think that the intent of that movie was? Um, Just the devastation of solitude. Yeah. The fact that they were totally detached from the rest of the world and had nothing else to react to. And they just got so tied up in this intense uh I guess it was a psychosis inflicted by by being alone and and not feeling anything connected, you know? Yes. You know, the two male actors in it, and we'll get to that in a minute, of course, we'll, we'll talk about them soon. But, uh, you know, the, the uh, Bruges movie that they were both in, oh, I yeah. I kind of enjoyed. This one, I sort of feel the same as you. I, I, I kind of... It's really hard. It's hard going, uh, yeah. beautifully shot. I tell you what, it did make me think that I must go and visit Ireland because I, I love I love Southern Ireland. It's just it's gorgeous. Yeah, they they, they also let you see the harshness of the environment they, as well. Yes, they did. Yes, the, they did. The isolation. Absolutely... Yeah. I mean, yes. You know, it, it, to me, it'd be like living on a cold rock without Internet. You know, yeah. Yeah, but that's what that was their life, and and uh, it was some some people adjust better than others. I you know. Well, that's that, Captain Bod Ross's uh, ideas for actress in a supporting role. Let's let's go and look at actresses in a leading role. Nominees: Kate Blanchett in Tar, Anna de Armes in Blonde, Andrea Riseborough into Leslie, Michelle Williams in The Fablemans, and Michelle Yeoh in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Well, Michelle Yeoh is a odds-on favorite. There's very little doubt about that in in a lot of minds, including mine. Uh, 
Ana de Armas as blonde in Blonde, I think, is kind of a joke uh-huh. because the movie was so soapy and trashy and sleazy in a lot of ways. I thought it just really denigrated. It was it turned it turned the story into tacky melodrama. You know, I thought. Tell us that. Tell us about that movie because I haven't seen it and oh. I'm I, I've sort of avoided it. So just just give us a quick Bob Ross overview. Anna, Anna de Armas just, uh, portrays young Marilyn Monroe. And then yeah. oh, Marilyn Monroe between uh, Arthur Miller and Joe DiMaggio, that period. Not really young, but when she was a big star, she was, you know, decomposing mentally in some ways. But it, there, there was a lot of bizarre references and behavior. I don't know. It just it was one of those uh, melodramas that. I mean, uh, what do you call it? Docudrama. You know, yes. It was, yeah. It was, it was not. It was fiction based on real people using their real names. It just seemed, you know, it clipped the 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 basic stories clipped out of the headlines from the yes. from the news, the yeah. gossip. Yeah. Um, yeah. Michelle Williams in the Fablemans. I I tried to watch the Fablemans, Bob. I could not get through it. It 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 just didn't do it for me. Yeah, well, it's self-indulgent. It's a yeah. yeah you know, a, guy, a man like Spielberg deserves to make his own personal movie at any right. any and and it's very personal and very real. And as a as a young misfit child myself, at times without without any talent, it's even worse. So, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. So I you know I think he I think he did what he again he did what he wanted to do and he did right. it extremely well. But I don't think it's for everybody. Okay, to Leslie, I have not seen. That's Andrea Riseborough. Yeah, know anything sorry. about that one? I'm sorry, I don't really. Oh. It's just, all I read was uh, afterward, everyone was surprised that she got nominated. Yes. Um, okay. So that the, the movie is being re-released into theaters now that it's been nominated. Now that I see. Okay. So everyone gets a chance now. And then one time big favorite for lots of people, Kate Blanchett in Tar. There's another one that I have not seen. I've not seen it yet. It's my own fault. I'm looking forward to it. I'm a big fan of Kate Blanchett. So yes, I'm yes, sure indeed. it'll be great. Let's so. turn let's turn to actors in a supporting role. Nominees. Brendan Geeson, or Gleason rather, in The Banshees of Inner Sharon. Brian Tyree Henry in Causeway, Judd Hirsch in The Fablemans, Barry Keegan in The Banshees of Inner Sharon, and Kei Hui Kwan in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Kei Hui Kwan, again, odds on favorite because the movie's a big favorite. And he, do you know his story? You know who he is? I don't. No, go go no, for it. Did you see the uh, the Indiana Jones sequel, Temple of Doom? Mm, I, knew I may have done, but it's a long time ago, right? Well, he had a little a young sidekick, and they ah. named him Short Round. Ah, that's him. That's him. Okay, all right. Okay, so, so what? So that's like, the that's yeah, the yeah. odds-on favorite then. That one. But now, what about this? Well, Barry, I would Barry... say sentimental favorite anyway. Yeah. What's the Barry? Ke- well, Barry Keegan, a supporting actor in the Banshees of Inner Sharon. Um, who, I'm sorry. Who did he play? Was the I think friend? I think he played. I think he played the young boy. I think that's who oh, that oh. is. Barry... Oh, of yeah. course. That's why I didn't know him. Uh, again, very powerful performance all around because everyone had down that 
that dour Irish yeah. cloud, yes. cloud covered spirit, you know, yes. everything's yeah. dark. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Uh, if it's only cloudy and not raining, you're you're ahead of the game, you know. Jeez. Yeah. All anyway, right, the Fablemans are in with Judd Judge Her, Judd Hirsch. Rather. He's yeah. always great. And I, what I read, I haven't even watched it yet, but what I read was that he's very briefly in the movie, but he steals it anyway. And okay. he's a precedent for that. If yeah. you remember, I think it was Shirley Knight in uh, Network. Uh-huh. One supporting actress. Yeah, because she played the wife and she had one huge scene in it and she got the Oscar for supporting. Ah. Let's go to Causeway with Brian Tyree Henry. What do you know about that? I love Brian Tyree Henry, not for this movie, but but he's on a show called Atlanta, a TV show. He plays a character named Paperboy and he's terrific. So I know he's a great actor and I'm looking forward to see Causeway's on, I think, Netflix or something. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, but this guy, uh, Brian Tyree Henry, anything he's in, he's good. He's just an amazing guy. I like him. Let's go to actors in a leading role. We start off with the heart. I, gosh, what am I going to say about that? Austin Butler. Austin Butler, yeah. Uh, Colin Farrell in The Banshees of Inner Sharon. Mm. Brendan Fraser in The Whale. Paul Mescal in After Sun. And Bill Nye in Living. Okay, let's start at the top with Austin Butler in Elvis. I've got something to say, but I'm going to let you you go for it. What do you think? Uh, he was great. He did a great Elvis, but there's been a lot of great Elvises. I would still yeah. go Kurt, Kurt Russell back in the day. I don't think yeah. anyone could beat him. Uh, but this thing was, you know, it was okay. And you'll notice Tom Hanks is in on the list. He's not. He's not, and he was he was the big star in this movie un- until the reviews came out. Uh, he played a ter- he played a bad person, you know, and people yes. don't want to see a good actor like Tom Hanks, who's uh, you know America's good guy, playing a kind of a villain. It was a bit cartoonish, don't you think? Tremendously, the, the, yeah. his his interpretation of Colonel Tom Parker who was neither a colonel nor really named Tom Tom Parker. Right. He, he he just, it was an exaggerated performance. I thought, although I never met the man, there's very little film of him available. He stayed in the background, of course, but yes. he had to. He was an illegal immigrant with no passport, which is why Elvis never toured anywhere besides the exactly, U.S. Exactly, exactly, yes. Uh, yes. And, he, and it, Parker was the one that wouldn't let Elvis do serious film. That's right. So yeah. anyway, this this Elvis is a nice superficial look at everything we already know, you know? Yes, yeah, so I, I found it a little, I don't know, it seemed sort of, as I said, cartoonish, not just the Colonel Tom character, but the whole thing. And then it was Baz Luhrmann as the director, and I'm really not very fond of his, his uh, style at all. Ba- Baz Luhrmann movies are always about Baz Luhrmann. Yes. Starting with Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge. Yes. All this splash and, and goofy uh, changes and switches. And it's drawing attention to who made the film rather than what's going on in the film. And a lot of people love it. So what are you going to do? You can, you know, love it or leave it. Let's go to Colin Farrell. The Banshees of Inner Sharon. I, I, I'm mixed on this one. Bob, yeah. I, I, as I once again, it was such a downer of a movie. 
was it a was it good acting on Colin's part? I you know I'm I'm torn. I really am. What do you think? Well, uh, the character himself was something of a poor actor in terms of the way he behaved and looked at the world. Yes, and yes. so therefore, if, if if you got a good actor playing a guy acting badly. What do you say? Is he is he a good actor being bad or a bad actor? Yeah, I anyway, you know it's confusing. You it have is. to believe in the character. It's you, but it's you in the audience having to interpret what this guy's all about. He was yes. a victim, I thought. He was more of a victim because he was made the butt of a terrible act that he was not really responsible for, I thought. It's not a it's not an easy movie, is it, Bob? No, difficult. Like yes. I say, just they stick you in a location that makes you feel bad before it even starts. I thought I didn't think it was that all that beautiful, but that's just, <laughs> okay. you yeah. know, I kind of agree with you in some respects. <laughs> OK, let's move on to another one that I haven't seen, but it is on my list to see the whale. Brendan Fraser. Uh, I would call him a sentimental uh, favorite at this point. Because right. It was such a transformative performance by an actor who went kind of under the radar for several years, quite a few years. He was a bright young star. What? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Great, funny, successful movies. And then he sort of went in, went on his own way. You know, I don't really know. He didn't do anything bad. He didn't get in trouble that I know of, but yeah, not the point. He, He studied his craft, obviously. Now, because in some ways, this is a makeup movie because he's so heavily made up and there's a lot of critique. You know, there's people that say you can't play a part of someone that you really aren't. In other words, if you're if you're obese, if you're not obese, you can't play an obese person. If you're not Latino, you can't play a Latin person. Right. Yes. This, This mythology denies the entire idea of acting. You know, what's an actor? But anyway, he pulled it off. He suffered with the makeup and made it look acceptable, and he he inhabited the character powerfully. I thought you you think the it's a sentimental win for him then, yeah. Well, and it's sort of an achievement award as well. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? He's he's done a lot of other things in the past that are great, and frankly, none of these other nominees are are knockouts. I don't think. Right. Paul Mescal, let's quickly do him after some. You got me, boss. Yes, me too. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, let's move on then to Bill Nye. I love Bill Nye. Uh-huh. I haven't yep. seen Living yet, but I, anything he's—I've seen clips. I know he's going to be great. Yeah, he's—he's—he's he's, he's incapable of a poor performance. All right, now let's move on to director. Uh, we're okay. talking to Bob Ross. He's a film and media critic. We've had Bob on the on the show. I think every year since we've been doing this, I think it's been going back for a number of years now. Directing the Banshees of Inner Sharon, Martin McDonough. Who also made In Bruges, I believe. Yes, um, he did. Yes. And uh, those that alone makes him uh, high quality, good directing. Uh, you know, it, the movie itself is based more on the script, the script and the actors than I think anything the director does except hold the pace. Keep it down. Keep it nice and gray and quiet and not too exciting. So yeah. uh, I would, I, you know, nice nod. Uh, our favorites are the next on the list. Okay, everything, everywhere, all at once. Daniel Kwan and Daniel Shinert. Is that how you say Shinert? Yeah, Shinert. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they just saw the two Dans, the two Daniels. It's uh, obviously this is your odds-on favorite with all those right. comments. 
there are many cases in the past where a best film winner does not have best director. Yes. People say, oh, did it direct itself? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That, that happens because of the way the voting is done. Don't forget the biggest the biggest sector of voters are the actors. Of they course. Way. The next one, Bob, I, I'm really interested to hear your take on this one. Steven Spielberg, The Fablemans. I think he's won enough already. I don't I don't yeah. see him getting a third one for this. Mm. Uh, but it, anything's possible. You never know what's behind the scenes, you know. So, yeah. but yeah, I, I I would make it a an an not a favorite, you know, an underdog, yeah. an odd shot, a long shot, long shot, long shot. Okay, Tar, Todd Field. I I don't know enough about the film, but I know he's a very respected director, so he's got a chance. But again, the everything everywhere all at once. That's a, that's going to be like a tidal wave, I think. That's the one. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's one more which I know nothing about. Triangle of Sadness. Ruben Ostland. Ostland. Yeah, that's kind of a surprise entry. Uh, they snubbed some other directors for this, uh, including James Cameron. Remember him? Yes, I do remember him. Yes. <laughs> no. 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 Uh, no nomination. Uh, the movie got nominated, but not him. Right. And that's odd since he, of all people this year, transformed the technology of cinema. He moved it up a step uh, and yeah. with just with just that that filming. I mean, the, all, the IMAX or not IMAX, it was terrific. See, so, I'm still I'm still haunted. And I think you were on the radio when we talked about I'm I'm still haunted by Titanic. I'm still haunted by that. I still think ooh. it was an all it was an awful movie. But anyway, let's talk about Best Picture nominees. All Quiet on the Western Front. That was a German movie, I believe, isn't it? It was. It uh, was. Net, yeah. yeah, Netflix. Yeah. yeah. Avatar, The Way of Water, James Cameron, as we've just been talking about, and John Landau, the producers there. The Banshees of Inner Sharon. Elvis, Baz Luhrmann. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun, Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. Let's just talk about... That one, women talking. What do you know? Oh gosh, it's uh, it's a, it's a what you call a sleeper, a, a surprise hit, uh, because <clears throat> it sounds awful if you listen to the description, and then when you see it, it's uh, it knocks you off. It's about uh, women in a religious cult who uh, discover that they've all been molested and treated really badly, and they're talking uh. about what to do about it. It's serious stuff, but it's very uh, it's very dramatic and and well uh, well well presented, uh, but kind of a an outlier in the in the best picture uh, race. You'll notice that there's a mix here between independent films that nobody saw and huge right. box office hits. Yes, yes. So Let's talk. To- Let's talk about a huge box office one. Again, a movie I have not seen. And in this case, I have no intentions of seeing <laughs> Top Gun Maverick. Well, you know, it came on cable and we started it and we said, eh, we'll watch it later. And we still haven't got back to it. I, you know, I find it predictable, you know, and it sounds good on the home theater. I mean, you can crank it up uh, until you get complaints from people, you know, but it's a, uh, it's a it's a sound effects visual effects showcase and a tom cruise looks great you can't believe he's been around that long and so you know it's a fun movie but it's not best picture material Um, how does it compare to to 
Tony Scott's original movie, the late Tony Scott? It's uh does its best to replicate the mood and the feeling and some of the pl- and the plot in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's a it's it, it uses the same template, I would say. Yeah. Oh. Let's talk about Triangle of Sadness. What do you what do you know and what do you oh, hear Lord. about that one? Well, yeah. Give me the hard questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm not real sure. That's one I have not seen. And I don't even know if I have the screener of it. I haven't been paying attention. this Yeah. Year. So. OK. You'll have to tell me. Uh, let, let's let's just move on because some of these, are, as you say, big names and some of them are yeah. indies. Tar. Now, is Tar an indie? Pretty much. Yeah. It got that kind of distribution. Right, so, Todd Field, the director, of course. It's it should get re-released after the nominations come out and do fairly make some of its money back. And of course, and, the Fablemans, uh, once again, any chance? You don't think no, so, do you? Yeah. No, not when there's everything everywhere all at once. Now, all these other movies got some negative reviews. I haven't seen anyone who didn't love everything everywhere. Right. I okay. Mean, all these other movies, everything from Avatar to Elvis to, to Top Gun, there's a there's a segment of the audience that says, eh, you know. Let's talk about one that, I again, I haven't seen, but I've heard people saying they really enjoyed it, All Quiet on the Western Front. Yes. it's The only problem I have with a foreign language movie is I can't lie down on the couch and watch it because I can't read the subtitles sideways. Ah, yes. That's, that's just yes. me. Yes, that's, that's just, <laughs> other than that. Other than that, I think it's excellent. I'll just stay upright while I watch it. Now, I, I understand that you do. You is it a new puppy that you have? He rescued us at the SPCA. He's a five-year-old uh, yellow lab. Ah, he was kind of untrained in some respects when we got him. So, so I was just wondering whether what's his name? Tucker. Well, I was wondering whether Tucker was one of the reasons that you can't read the subtitles uh, in movies because you're spending too much time giving him attention. Isn't that, that's not the case, though, right? Oh, of course not. No, I, I, would, <laughs> I, I, I ignore the puppy, of course. <laughs> of course you do. He's, he's five years old. He can take care of himself. <laughs> Very quickly, Bob, anything you want to talk to us about? Just give us a little insight about the Oscars this year. Well, they're trying their best to stay relevant, to stay interesting, but nobody's going to watch this show, let's face it. But it'll still sell commercials. It'll still make money for the network. You know, I've been railing against the entire notion of Oscars uh, since I started this job, because as George C. Scott once brilliantly said, if you really want to have a contest for best actor, everyone has to do the same role. And you have to remember the Academy Awards were founded in 1927 as strictly a marketing device for the big producers. That's all it is. It's a chance to publicize the movie industry and make it look good. The other thing that annoys me is during most of my career, they referred to themselves as the Academy Awards. Oscars was considered crude slang. It was never used... They never called the show the Oscars. They called it the Academy, the Academy. Award. Yes. And every in print, everywhere. That's how they re, Ampas, A-M-P-A-S, called themselves that. One day I wake up and all of a sudden it's the Oscars. The Oscars. I love what? it. I love well, it. We're just, we're just dumbing down our entire civilization and I'm <laughs> glad I'm old. Oh, my goodness. I love it. Bob Ross has been my guest. He's a film and media critic. He's a gentleman that we call upon to give his take on movies and media. 
And he just did. Bob, as always, my friend, an absolute delight to see you and speak with you once again. Thanks for joining us at Life Elsewhere, Bob. My pleasure. Thanks, Norman. Thank you to my guests. Details about our shows are always up at lifeelsewhere.co. Till next time, be well, be safe, and as always, be nice. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind-the-scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Thank you.